Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. It's another Friday. The World Cup is banging on, I guess you would say, and there have been some good games, some very interesting results, depending, of course, on your perspective. I realize that we have listeners all over the world because there are Arsenal fans all over the world and I would say our Australian listeners are pretty happy this week. Our Danish listeners, not quite so much. From an Arsenal perspective, we're looking at the players involved in the tournament uh, to live vicariously through them. Bakayo Saka didn't play for England the other night. Aaron Ramsdale hasn't played and Ben White, as you will have seen by now, has left the World Cup to return home for personal reasons. Tomorrow, well, I'm recording this on Thursday, So maybe it's today by the time you're listening to this, but tomorrow, Friday, it's being reported that both Gabriel Martinelli and Gabriel Jesus will start for Brazil, which would be fun. And we saw William Saliba make his World Cup debut in a 1-0 defeat for France to Tunisia. Um, Granit Xhaka, of course, has played and the plethora of ex-Arsenal goalkeepers that are at the tournament have been in business as well. Wojciech Szczesny saving his second penalty of the tournament from Lionel Messi. And we did talk about this a little bit on the World Cup uh, Roundup podcast that we're doing over on Patreon. Lionel Messi's record from the penalty spot for a player as amazing and brilliant as he clearly is, is really not that great. Of course, he has scored 106 penalties, which is a lot, but he's taken 137, which means he has missed 31 penalties, which is also a lot. It's about... um, 77% success rate with penalties, which is pretty normal, which is to take nothing away from Wojciech Szczesny, because I think the save he made was, was absolutely brilliant. But it is just one of these weird things about Lionel Messi, who I would consider probably the greatest player of all time, but I, I wouldn't put money on him from the penalty spot. But maybe that's just the price you pay for having all the other superpowers, you can't just also have the superpower of of taking penalties. You know, somebody like, um, who's a good example that's playing at the moment, because I don't want to use any lunatic conspiracy theorist ex-players. Ivan Tony is a, a good example. He hasn't taken as many penalties as Lionel Messi, but he has taken 27 and scored 26 and missed just one. So in conclusion, what you would expect from me right now is some way of wrapping up the point that I was trying to make. However, that is completely and utterly dependent on me remembering what that point was in the first place. And I'm afraid to say I can't. So let's just leave it there and move on. Ireland are not at the World Cup. So of course, I'm watching this as a neutral And some of the games, I'm pretty glad I'm a neutral. Like, I would not have wanted to be a USA fan the other night when they were hanging on against Iran. I wouldn't have liked to have been an Australia fan. Those sort of one nils, we know them very well as Arsenal fans as well. But, you know, you get to the end of the game, it's like three minutes, four minutes. Uh Uh-uh. In this World Cup, we know that there's like so much injury time. It just doubles your end of game anxiety and everything else. I hope that uh, for the sakes of football fans around the world, there are ulcer medications in strong supply in all the nations still left in this tournament. But even though Ireland are not in Qatar, some of the Irish are indeed in Qatar. And you would have seen perhaps the clip of an Irish fan interview bombing a French fan who was being um, spoken to by Lequipe 
uh, TV, I think. And um, if you haven't seen it, it's, you know, typically highbrow stuff. This is what went down. Je suis un baguette. Il est irlandais, il est chaos là, il est red. The French guy, the translation is basically saying this Irish guy is fucking pissed. And some people might say, hey, that's a, that's a bit of a stereotype, a bit of a trope, if you like. But I think it's great that we still live in a world where it's just assumed the Irish guy is legless, like it was a week of St. Patrick's Days, and the French guy likes bread. Who doesn't like bread? We all like bread. And isn't that the beauty of football, reminding us of the simple pleasures of life? Now, let's get on with today's show. There really isn't much to talk about from an Arsenal perspective. So we're doing something a little bit different today. You will have heard me over the last number of weeks, if you're a regular listener, talk about and extol the virtues of the FIFA Uncovered documentary, which is available now on Netflix. And it is my pleasure to welcome to the show the writer and producer of that, Miles Coleman. Hi, Miles. Hi, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. I really, I really did enjoy this documentary. Um, and I'm curious, first and foremost, about what was it that sparked your interest in making this particular series? Because I think if you were to say to any football fan, you know, FIFA, they go, yeah, FIFA, you know, they're, we all know what they're up to. <laughs> and we all saw what happened in the news, and I'm sure we'll get around to that. But to sort of frame it and to sort of consolidate what everybody knew in documentary format, what, what was the spark that made you think, okay, there's something for me to do here? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, well, first of all, Thanks for, for having me and thanks for calling our series excellent. When we get posters made up for our bedroom walls, we're going to put excellent. Arsenal <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> got it. Like that's what it, that's the review we've been waiting for for sure. Um, <laughs> I think um, you know it's like like you said. Like I, I'm a big football fan, and like every football fan, I sort of had a knot in my stomach about the future of the game, and always have done, and have never really felt that FIFA truly were looking out for my interests, the interests of players, the interests of players. Like, it always felt pretty divorced. And then in 2015, seemingly out of nowhere, there's this massive, you know, kind of unexpected bombshell that there are these arrests in Zurich and that several FIFA executives are being taken out from a luxury hotel mm -hmm. hidden under white sheets. There's this big press conference by the FBI. That's what starts our documentary. And that was kind of what started uh, for everyone on the team the process of thinking, okay, there might be a documentary here. And then I think we have 2015 and the raids, and then we have 2022 and the Qatar World Cup. And there was this idea that in the seven years in between, um, and in that interim we were making the film, not over seven years, but about mm. three and a half, there was a sense that this is a really pivotal moment for football. And I think on a sort of a wider level, there's a sense that we're at a fork in the road um, for the sport. Uh, we've seen stuff like the Super League come and go in that time. But in that time, there's been a lot of soul-searching for football and a lot of soul-searching for football fans as our clubs and as our game takes takes steps down the roads that we don't necessarily like. So on the one level, it's a very obvious thing. Okay, there are these raids in Zurich. That's very dramatic. That's very exciting. That's very filmic. But on a sort of more meta level, it's like, well, what's the future of our game? What What's actually going to be happening to football over the, in the coming years? You know, Are we going to have a biennial World Cup proposed by the Saudi Arabian Football Federation? And so that, those are the sort of wider questions we're trying to answer. But obviously, everyone loves a good true crime story. And this is a true crime story at the end of the day. <laughs> well, that's it. Um, I mean, the sometimes you get a documentary and, you know, you, you get, I don't know, a bit of world building, if you like, at the start. Like, this is the origin story, whatever it is. But in this, you go, it's like, bang, straight into it. And even when you sort of go back a little bit and explain the the origins of FIFA, um, the World Cup starting, how it became a bigger organization, things like that. You can see very clearly that, for example, I think it's the 1974 World Cup, that something changes quite radically in the way that FIFA operates, in the way that certain people view football as, uh, I don't want to use the word product, but you know what I mean, the, the sort of commercialization of the game really starts to take hold at that point, And you see this influx of, of money come into the game. And as we all know, money is a corrupting factor. Um, 
it is quite fascinating to look at um, that that moment where they do this deal with ISL and Horst Dazzler. And I, do you know what? I, have you ever watched a TV show called The Shield? I haven't, but I know a bit about it. Right. It's a cop show, basically. It's one of the best shows, um, you know, I, for me up there with The Wire and The Sopranos and things like that. But it happens, what happens in this show, I'm not going to give any spoilers away, is, is one thing happens at the start and pretty much everything else then is like the ripple effect of that one thing that they do. And that struck me as kind of relevant to this when it comes to FIFA and what happened uh, with the deal that they did with, with ISL. Yeah, and, and I would say, like, as filmmakers, we love those sort of moments of original sin because you can really trace everything back to that one decision taken by one person in one room. Mm. And on a sort of filmic level, that really works. And, I mean, no, you're absolutely right. Like, I can't remember a time as a football fan when money wasn't in the game. I also can't remember a time as a football fan where I thought, wow, FIFA are really nailing it. They're, they're rock stars. They're doing such a brilliant job. But it's really important... Um, I think in the documentary for us to travel fans back to a time before all of this, because it wasn't always so. It's really easy for us to think that it was always like this, and it just wasn't. You know, mm. there was the first club ever to put a sponsor on its shirt. There was the first ever sponsored tournament. By the way, I think the first ever sponsor on a shirt was Jägermeister in a German league, <laughs> which is just quite fun. But, like, the point is, like, I can't imagine a football shirt without a sponsor, but that, it wasn't always the case. Mm. It wasn't always the case that you had advertising hoardings. And what's even more incredible when you travel back and when, you know, you talk about Horst Dazzler, who um, is the sort of seen as the godfather of sports marketing, also the, the boss of Adidas for many years. If you look at, you know, those clips from 1978 and how prevalent Adidas is in the stadium now, turn on the World Cup today and Adidas are still there. Coca-Cola mm. are still there. Those links are unbroken back to those sort of original moments when the people at the top of the game decided, you know what, we're sitting on an unmined seam of gold here. We're sitting on riches and we want to exploit that and open that up for profit. And by the way, I don't think anyone can say that that's pure good or pure bad. I don't think that's what the documentary tries to say. We're not trying to say that, oh, all football should only be played in hackney marshes <laughs> with jumpers for goalposts. But I think the way that it evolved somewhat unquestioningly, it's just helpful to go back and go, okay, what were those moments? What were those moments when money entered the game? What were the moments when corruption entered the game? Because if you talk about Horst Dazzler and all the money he bought in, you do also have to talk about the fact that he was playing, he was paying people under the table to make sure that other companies couldn't outcompete him for the rights. And that's the birth of corruption in sports. And that is what gets us. That's what answers the question, how did we get here in 2015 with those arrests? It's a, when you mention it there, you talk about Adidas, talk about Coca-Cola. One of the things that you, you see quite often is like if there is a corrupt organization, if there are, you know, um, I don't know, publications that are publishing things that are, you know, beyond the pale, people will say, look, target the advertisers because they're the ones that are basically um, funding this when it comes right down to it. You know, so talk to the advertisers. But here we are, despite everything, despite all the scandals which i'm sure we'll d uh, dig into the nuts and bolts of but those sponsors are still there i mean how does that how do you see that um you know the the, the sort of commercial side of the game or or the money that comes into the game how does a company like adidas like coca-cola which is intrinsically connected to fifa and has been for all these years managed to sort of stay at arm's length away from from the corruption if you like because look nobody's going to say it's, it's not coca-cola's fault that all this stuff went on or people were being paid and people were sending money here there and everywhere but they are associated with an organization that did it yeah I and mean, it's really interesting that when blatter did eventually step down in 2015 we need to look at that timeline right so mm. There are the arrests before the presidential election, a couple of days before. There's the turbulence. Then the Congress goes ahead and revotes Blatter. Blatter wins that election by a landslide. So even though there's just been all these arrests, <laughs> a majority of delegates go, yeah, you know what, he's the right guy to lead to keep leading FIFA. And then Blatter sat down a few days later. And what happens in the interim is that the sponsors turned on him, is that Coca-Cola and Adidas and many of the other sponsors put out statements saying, we don't think he's fit to lead. And I think it's really telling, mm. you know, to your point, that that's basically the final push off the cliff for Blatter. That's the moment where people really do take notice. And he could not weather that storm. He could weather everything else 
and still be re-elected, but it's, the sponsors are so important. So to your question, how do they keep at arm's length? Willingly, willingly. Mm. They know exactly how to manage these, these relationships. They are incredibly sophisticated organizations. I'm sure they're watching what's happening in Qatar and they're not sat there passively going, gee, I hope this blows over. They've got teams of people looking at every little detail and making sure, because that's what happened with Blatter. The second it got too much, they put the pressure on Blatter. I do also think that when it comes to those sponsors, you know, Adidas and Coca-Cola, no matter what scandals football bring in, I'm sure there's someone sat there with a calculator going, okay, on the negative side, scandal, scandal, scandal. <laughs> on the positive side, eyeballs, eyeballs, eyeballs. Yeah. They love the attention. They love the positive affirmation that people bring when it comes to football. You know, they love the fact that they are being associated with the world's number one pastime. So I think in some extent, why do they keep themselves, you know, involved in it despite the dirtiness? It's just worth it financially for them because football's so brilliant. Uh, to quote or maybe misquote Philippe Claire, if football wasn't so great, I'd probably hate it. You know, it's, that's that's just how it works. Um, can we go back to ISL a little bit as well? Because, look, they had this stranglehold over the um, the television rights of the World Cup, and that was a huge revenue generator for, for them and, and for FIFA. But would you say when ISL collapsed that, that this sort of – there was a, a need for FIFA almost to kind of double down in order to deal with the the debts that they had accrued at that point that, okay, well, how do we do this? We do the same thing, but we do it worse slash better, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, the collapse of ISL is um, a very important part of this story. And for filmmakers, it was a bit of a challenge because it's not very sexy, right? A, a sort of a Swiss marketing company going under. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't exactly like you know, uh, you know, it doesn't scream television entertainment. But it was really important for a few reasons. One, in the story of Blatter, it's the moment where Blatter comes under fire from his own executive committee. There's a sense from the people around Blatter that actually maybe he's not the best person for the job, that he represents an old school way of doing things and frankly, a corrupt way of doing things, that he was someone who was um, cognizant of the fact that ISL were playing bribes to artificially deflate marketing rights. And basically that he was someone who was overseeing the ship of FIFA steering into a financial iceberg. And they tried to take him on and failed. And that's a really important point because basically... FIFA as an organization looked at this and went, yeah, we're kind of okay with how we're, how we're managing this. Mm. And that was a real fork in the road moment. And then I think you're absolutely right to talk about them doubling down because ISL, the way that ISL and FIFA marketing rights, it's a bit of a credit card system in the sense that you, you know, you're getting the cash in now, but what you're selling is future competitions. You're, you're, you're selling credit basically. So what FIFA looked at and said, right, in order to clear up this ISL mess, in, in order to ensure that we pay our staff and we don't go bankrupt, we need to sell future tournaments. And we need to market them harder than we've ever marketed them before. We need to make them juicier than we've ever made them before. We need to make sure that we're selling more in advance. I mean, that's what happened with the double bid for 2018 and 2022. They basically sold two competitions at once to ensure that they're still getting the money in, you know, to, to keep the lights yeah. on. Last thing I'd say on that is that when we look at proposals like a biennial World Cup, we often talk about them as football fans. Oh, do I really want to watch the World Cup every two years? Is that good for players? FIFA are looking at biennial World Cup and just going, well, twice the revenue, twice the competition, yeah. twice the revenue. That's why that's such a popular idea for them. So that ISL collapse has its echoes all the way until today. And the ISL collapse came after the... I suppose Sepp Blatter is quite central to this whole story and, and we'll talk about him and I think some of what he said and even the fact that you were able to talk to him to the extent which you did is is really interesting. But the seeds of the corruption, if you like, go back to Zhao Havelange, who was Blatter's predecessor as, as president of, of FIFA and the amount of money that was, you know, when you think about it in terms of the, the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the amount of money that was going around at that point was, was kind of astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. And I, I think Havelange is a remarkable figure. So as part of this documentary, um, we, I must have listened to about 30 hours of Havelange's biography, him narrating his own story in his own world. Um, I did a Portuguese degree at uni, so I right. was able to listen to him 
I do. I, I say able to. It was <laughs> the, it was the ball and chain of my life for about two weeks, just listening <laughs> to him tell his own story for for hours. Of which, like, I think maybe twelve seconds made it into the final documentary or something stupid like that. Right. So. Um, <laughs> when you ask me a question about Joao Havelange, what you're going to get is a deluge of information that is disproportional to how much made it in the in the final documentary. So I apologize on. in advance. Bring it on. <laughs> but he's he's an absolutely fascinating figure because he is the first person who really figures out that sport and football can become a business. And he's also the person that figures out the politics behind FIFA. He absolutely sort of hacks the politics of FIFA. Mm. And the messaging that he puts out to the world is, Football has long since been a closed club for Europeans run by these gentlemen and basically sod them all. There's more of us than there are of you, and we're the real spirit of football. And it's kind of hard to argue with that message, and obviously that is a message that resonates until today. But Avalanche is someone who, I mean, it's very hard to, to reduce him to just someone who was corrupt and was taking black money under the table. I mean, was sure. he doing that? Certainly. Was he paying people to vote for him? Almost certainly. But... He's also someone who grew the game massively. If you want to know why you could walk into a bar in Bhutan or Nepal or Bolivia and have a chat about Arsenal tomorrow, mm. it's basically because of Jao Havelange. He's the guy who says we need to globalize the game. So he's a very complex, complex figure. He's also someone who's very comfortable sending football to dictatorships. So we see this most prominently in the 1978 World Cup in Argentina, where basically in between the Argentina is being awarded the World Cup and it being played. There's a military coup. There's a junta, a pretty evil junta. And Havelange takes one look at them and basically says, no, I'm, I'm okay with this. Mm. Not only am I okay with the fact that we're hosting a World Cup here, I actually quite like this idea. I like the idea that the generals will efficiently let us do our marketing strategy. I like being chauffeured around in my fancy car and having a big police escort. Jarl Havelange is a son of an arms dealer, so he's Sort of politically, you can imagine that he's someone who's actually quite comfortable with the right. And if you look at images of him, mm. he's intimidating. He's terrifying. He's got these kind of cold blue eyes. I listened to his auto him narrating his own autobiography, like I say, for 30 yeah. hours. And he spoke in the kind of most formal third person, one believes this the entire time. He even said, may I swear on this podcast? Yes, of course. He even described an interaction with a... a, a, a an English uh, football administrator where he said, one can go fuck oneself in one's ass. Like <laughs> even in his most vulgar, he was incredibly formal, incredibly sort of disciplined and authoritarian. And I think that kind of bled into how he managed football. He was really okay with not just the idea that the dictatorships or regimes that were repressive would host football. He kind of sold them that idea. He would give these minor tournaments to regimes and say, basically, he was one of the first people to actually promote it to the regimes themselves. Before that, dictatorships didn't want journalists coming in. That was a nightmare. Mm. Why would they want a whole bunch of European sports journalists poking around and complaining? He was the first person to suggest to countries like Tunisia in 1977 and Uruguay with the Mundialito in 1980, why don't you actually use us, use football, use FIFA to kind of present a new image of yourselves in the world? So, yeah, sorry, I warned you. Pavelange is a good subject for me. Yeah, well, I mean, how fundamental do you think he was to the culture that began and existed and i think throughout this documentary we see run throughout fifa because you know you can talk about him being quite happy to cozy up to dictators and dictatorships and everything else and then you look at a picture of gianni infantino and vladimir putin and you know it's very very easy to draw a line between those two things Absolutely. Joao Havelange set the culture for FIFA and his protege was Sepp Blatter. And mm. Sepp Blatter then set the, the culture for FIFA for many years. And many people point out that Infantino and Blatter comes from, they come from Swiss villages about 10 kilometers apart. And, mm. you know, while I come from, you know, while people can come from areas that are similar and, and not necessarily be the same person, I think there is a sort of a through line that goes through all of them. What I say with Havelange as well, one of the cultures he brings in, and it kind of speaks to him as this kind of um, very dignified, reified figure, is the culture that FIFA executives aren't like you and me. They go to games in suits. Yeah. They drink champagne. They are chauffeur-driven. That really wasn't a thing before Havelange, but he was so obsessed with the idea of respect and culture. Um, one of the stories about Havelange that always stuck with me is his father dropped dead on his 18th birthday. 
and on, on Havilland's 18th birthday yeah. rather. And, and his father had been selling arms to the Brazilian government and Havilland expected that the Brazilian government would sort of step in and, and help him and give him some sort of medical aid or pay for the funeral or whatever. And, and when they didn't, Havilland was really like shaped by this and basically said, okay, I get it. I can never expect help from anyone. I need to make my own way in the world. I basically like that sort of very like, I'm a businessman, I'm an entrepreneur, screw the rest of you, I'm mm. going out there for myself. And that attitude, that very like cutthroat political attitude, combined with the fact that he's sort of someone who thinks that people in authority deserve respect, that being in control is something that gives you the right to look down on people. All those things combine to an attitude where I think the FIFA executives for many, many years just, just gallivanted around the world, behaving like barons, expecting to be treated in a pretty absurd way. Five-star hotels, Etc. Etc. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you about that at a later point, but we're on it now. And, you know, you don't really dive into this too much, but there are glimpses of what you might call FIFA executive excess, if you like. Um, you know, there's a lady, um, is it Alexandra Raj? Is that how you pronounce her name? Alexandra Raggi, yeah. Raggi. Um, she came in as like a, an advisor to the FIFA governance board after all the, the scandals and, um, you know, basically uh, <laughs> gave up and said, like, this is just a whitewash. But she references, you know, you go to a FIFA event and everyone's arriving and there's the young girls in their short skirts. And, you know, you see a glimpse of, I don't know if it was a Rolex watch, but it looked like an expensive watch with the FIFA logo on it. And there is, a, I guess, a lifestyle that comes when you are at FIFA, when you're one of the executives, when you're maybe on the executive committee, or even if you're in charge of a regional uh, football association, football federation, you know, did, I hate to use the word trickle down because, you know, it has some unfortunate connotations at the moment, but it, it does seem like that was the case. And, and when you're sort of in that lifestyle, it becomes very difficult to say, well, you know what, maybe we shouldn't be staying in five-star hotels. Maybe we shouldn't be on private jets. Maybe we shouldn't be drinking the finest wines and eating the finest food. No one's going to say that because you're in there and you're in it. And then it becomes something almost to aspire to for people who want to get involved with, with FIFA. So before I ask you another question about just the organization as a whole, how much do you think that 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 culture inside of FIFA was it's like you, you create the beast, you must feed the beast and you know, it love, just keeps going. Ab I absolutely love that question. Cause that's something that really bothered me when, when we were putting this together and going through, you know, the footage of these congresses where they'd have, you know, there'd be a room of 24 men on the executive committee and the only women in there deciding the future of women's football, by the way, the only women would be the waitresses. Yeah. And like that, that's a pretty great suit. And it makes me think of, of two very important things. The first is that I think that was a deliberate ploy by FIFA to almost pan for gold. What do I mean by that? I mean that like if they were throwing luxury at people, five-star hotels and, and you know, uh, junkets and, and private jets, there were two types of people. There were people like Alexandra who took one look at this and went, oh, my God, this is batshit. Yeah. I'm leaving. Or there were people who, like the countless people who stayed in FIFA, it stayed in FIFA who loved it, who got hooked on it. And that was a very clever way for FIFA to ensure they separated everyone into insiders and outsiders. Mm. And, and if that sounds mafia-esque, it is a bit mafia-esque. It creates a code of silence, which is basically saying, okay, we're all in this together. We're all loving the same stuff. We're all loving the same lifestyle. So don't speak out. Don't break ranks. And it was a very clever way of panning for gold and making sure that people who came into the FIFA system either packed their bags and left quickly if they were going to be outsiders and disruptive or stayed and were kind of contributing to that code of silence if they were going to be insiders. The second thing that it makes me think of is in our story, there are plenty of instances of people being paid this and that. And frankly, out of the documentary, there are even more. So in the documentary, there's a story about people going to Trinidad and leaving Foddy Grand in, in brown envelopes. But there yeah. are many other stories. So-and-so was given a watch by this federation. Um, Michel Doug, who's the Belgian uh, FIFA commit, uh, executive committee member who spoke to us, for example, he was famously accused of taking a painting from the Russian bid. And what emerged time and time again is the people who were in exchanging these gifts that were worth tens, hundreds of thousands of pounds, they didn't think they were doing anything wrong. And the reason they gave us 
for, that they thought they weren't doing anything wrong. They said, this is how football worked. You go to an under-21 qualifier and you would walk out with a Rolex. Of course you would. So why would I think that a Russian delegate giving me a painting from the World Cup bid is, is anything abounding to a bribe? That's normal. That's like oxygen. That's a glass of water. That blew my mind. That blew my mind. And that they would offer that up as a reasonable excuse. I can't have been bribed because, of course, I would be given a painting. Or in the case of Duh, and it sounds like I'm picking on him. I am a little bit, I guess. But, you know, his, he was given a job in Qatar. His son was given a job in Qatar at their medical academy. If you look at the amount of people who are just getting favors here and favors there, they didn't even realize that this was influence buying. It was so commonplace. The water had got so muddy. And that broke my heart as a football fan because I just thought, that's that's my game. You're doing yeah. this, dude. That's my game. Well, I mean, that's... That's what I think is the most fascinating bit about this documentary is that the the idea that nobody thinks they did anything wrong simply because that's the way it works within this organization. And you mentioned the code of silence. We could use the word omerta, whatever you want to do in the opening um bit of the documentary there's a sort of clip of i think it's the fbi guy talking about you know or, or somebody talking on on tv in america about how this is basically an organized crime syndicate uh, this is well not necessary he says this is how organized crime syndicates work let me clarify that very quickly you know but but that is a common thread when you speak to all the various people throughout this documentary like self-reflection and even some vague awareness that what they were doing was obviously beneficial to them and obviously beneficial to FIFA. But if FIFA is there to um, govern the game, it's not good for the game and it's not good for the people who play the game. It's not good for the people who support the game and it's not good for people who want to go to games. You know, so it became so insular, perhaps this sort of gated community, which they were just not able to see outside of. And I'm not trying to say that, uh, you know, to make excuses for them, because I don't think there are any excuses. But it, it was just, it really was astonishing that, like, you're talking to people who have been up to their eyes in all kinds of stuff, and they're like, yeah, but, you know, we, we didn't do anything wrong. There is, like, what does Blatter say in the opening few minutes there is no corruption in fifa i mean and and what's what's really great about that is you know you have this guy saying there is no corruption in fifa you then document very clearly how fifa how football has been corrupted from inside and outside and then when you see him speak again you know it's always there in your mind that he has said this and now he's telling you this and you know you can all make your mind up on, on how truthful you think he's being, but in the very first instance, you know, we, we see him say something which patently isn't true. There's a brilliant line by the writer John Niven who says that to create the ultimate bad guy, the ultimate villain character, you need to have someone who says something you despise 99% of the time and then something you agree with 1% of the time. <laughs> because... And that's what really like captivated me because so for this documentary, I spoke to maybe, I don't know, three, three, four hundred people off the record from around the world of football, then maybe a hundred or so interviews of which 30, 40 made it into the final cut. That's just kind of how, how a doc like this works. Mm. And I liked almost everyone I met. And, <laughs> and, and that was, you know, that was the amazing thing is like some of these people are absolutely charming. And they're saying stuff you agree with and you get on with and you talk about football and you just shoot the breeze and they'd be, you know, they'd be nice people to hang around with. I, I, you know, pick almost everyone. There's only a handful of exceptions. I won't pick on who, who I didn't like, but mm -hmm. basically everyone is, is very charming. To take someone like Jerome Valk, Jerome Valk sat with us and yeah. for four and a half hours about his career and to put him in context, he is basically the CEO of FIFA. He's the highest um, ranking paid employee of FIFA for, you know, several years. And He's completely engaging, and he, you know, he talks about the, the what happened with the the bribes in Trinidad, and he goes, "How could people be, you know, so stupid to do this? Like it's just..." And you go, "Yeah, yeah, okay, cool, we're on the same page." But then he talks about the ten million dollars that South Africa paid to Jack Warner for Jack Warner's vote, which Valk personally oversaw that payment going through. And Valk goes, "No, but that was to set up a legacy program for young Caribbean kids to play football." And you, you, you want to, you know, you go, oh my goodness. 
like how could the same person who thought this very lo logical rational thing a minute ago completely flip and i sort of go back to your question which i loved about about Havalanche. who are the kinds of people what is the kind of culture that fifa created who does it attract to work in it it attracts people who are basically soul agents people who want to get to the top people who want to have the best lifestyle possible and are very ambitious and it's sort of like a laboratory for pure politics because you don't have to pander to an electorate you know who want things like like a cost of living reduced you just need to pander to people who are happy if the football's on and guess what the football will be on whatever so you can keep climbing that that ladder up to the top and it attracts people who can flip rhetorically in their own minds from being incredibly logical and rational and likable one minute to saying something that you go how could you possibly a, believe that and believe that I'm going to believe that. Yeah, I mean, we exist in a world, don't we, where many football fans have to employ some cognitive dissonance when it comes to supporting their teams, sponsors, you know, the World Cup, as we know. Um, people had objections to the World Cup being in Qatar for various reasons, uh, in Russia for various reasons. But, you know, we sit down and we watch it because we love football and you sort of, you're compromised in a way by your by your love of the game. But what you're saying about these people is that they can employ that cognitive dissonance to their own ends, if you like, for career gain or ambition or, or personal um, development, if you want to call it that. I, I don't know if that's quite the right word, but Talk to me about Seth Blatter then and, you know, the the interviews that you do with him throughout this. I mean, from the outside, before I ever saw this documentary, you know, he is somebody who I would intrinsically not have trusted a single word that he said ever. You know, after seeing the documentary, that's even more, <laughs> that's even more the case. But, you know, he's sort of this affable old man talking about like, well, we didn't do any, we didn't do, you know, there was none of this. There was none of that. I mean, do you think he really believes that? Or do you think he was so conditioned by the, the organization of FIFA itself and the way that it operated that, that really he is sort of existing in a world where he thinks he was just, doing what you do when you're in FIFA and in the world of football? Let me give you kind of my experience of, of setting up that interview with yeah. him, which I think might kind of answer your question. So many people have said to me after this, like, how do you get Blatter to talk? I, I can't believe you said. Yeah. And we, like I said, we spoke to hundreds of people for this. There were people that took two years to convince to do an interview. Blatter said yes pretty much instantly. Now, that's not because I think we're super charming. I think that's because Seth Blatter is a consummate politician. And giving Blatter a camera is like giving a carpenter a hammer. This is what he does. Mm. He talks. He has the gift of the gab. And someone said to me in this that Blatter is the single greatest politician that's ever lived. And I think they might be right. He has that Trumpian, Boris Johnsonian ability to be showered with accusations and turn around and go, well, none of this is true. He, if he told you the sky was red, you'd look up just to double check because he has that ability. Mm. When we, um, so when we set the interview with him, it was, you know, and we're dealing with his sort of PR people, I suppose, not him directly. Um, it was, you know, we're doing this story about FIFA and it's going to talk about corruption. We want to talk about his, um, you know, his legacy. We want him to have a voice and share, you know, his side of the story because as you can imagine, people are going to say some nasty things about him. And they were just like, yeah, fine, cool. Where do you want us? Then COVID hits and uh, Blatter got COVID and was actually comatose and, and nearly died at the back end of 2020. So um, when we went and filmed with him and we're trying to put this together, he's a very different, he's a very different person. He's an old man. He's frail. He's come off this, this health crisis. And when he joins us for the filming day, there's a sparkle in his eye that is just quite disarming. Like, you have to remember, I, I'm not being glib about this. We spent three years researching all of the things that went awfully wrong mm. under his FIFA. But he's just a little old man with a bit of a twinkle in his eye who's completely charming to all of us on the crew. You know, you can imagine that people, we've got a big crew, we've got sound and all these people, and, and he shook everyone's hand. He was nice. He was polite. And then he sits down and gives you an interview. And, you know, you think you're going to get some kind of 
stonewall. You think you're going to get nothing. And he gives you these little tidbits. He gives you just enough that that when he says, oh, I take no responsibility for what happened in FIFA, yeah. that it almost sounds believable. <laughs> but I do, you know, to your question, does he believe it? Yeah, I think he does. I think that when he looks around, he says, I've never been found guilty of a crime ever in my life, not once. And if he was to get on a plane tomorrow and go to Africa, uh, Asia, you know, basically the, the part of the world which he championed, he would be received as a hero. In, in South Africa, where I was born, people think Blatter, that's the guy who gave us the World Cup. Mm. So Blatter may live in sort of in, in Europe, in Zurich, but he, he would say, well, they're not my constituents. My constituents who love me are in Africa and they know I've done nothing wrong. The courts know I've done nothing wrong. So of course I'm going to tell these English documentary makers I've done nothing wrong because that's what I deep down believe. And he's a very fascinating person, really fascinating person. If anything, our series is almost like The Crown, but for Seth Blatter. It's the story <laughs> of his life and his career. I mean, I, mean, I don't want to say like you got played or anything like that because that's clearly not the case but he obviously knew what he was doing he knew what he's capable of he knew or knows that he is this guy like there are moments in the documentary where shit is hitting the fan so to speak and he just lets it wash right over he just ducks down and carries on you know i think that look, i think that's a really good point like i don't want to make it seem like i'm kind of in in awe of him because i know exactly all the things that he's done yeah as documentary makers what we're trying to do we're not trying to sit and anyone down and just yell at them and go, you bastard, how could you? That's not art. <laughs> Some people do that. Yeah, yeah. There are people like Andrew Jennings who did that to an art form. I mean, Andrew Jennings did that as a sort of, you know, to, to God level status. What we were trying to do with Blatter is, is let him tell his story in his own words, let audiences decide. And I think in that extent, it worked because a lot of people have said they can first understand how it was that Blatter rose. We need to transport ourselves to a time before Blatter being the most hated man in football. Mm. And we need to understand how was it that he was able to charm the FIFA delegates first before we go down to the point where we're so angry. And I hope we were able to do that by letting him tell his own story in his own words, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, I think the way you framed it at the beginning with him saying there is no corruption in FIFA, you know, it, it just it gives you that perspective when he talks. Well, I've got that in the back of my mind. So um, when I when I hear what he has to say, you know, there's there's a big big question mark over the top of it. Were there people that you wanted to talk to that couldn't or that you couldn't talk to or wouldn't talk to? I presume that's actually probably a really long list <laughs> that you can't get into. But there must have been some people that you know you were desperate to talk to who maybe had the good sense not to appear on camera in the way that Seth Blatter did. <laughs> you know, I don't think anyone who appeared on camera. Um, comes off worse for having done so. And I've had really nice messages from people that you wouldn't expect saying, I'm really glad that I did this and I spoke and mm. thank you for kind of putting it out there. You know, someone described this as very cathartic, um, just hearing this all laid out like that. But no, there were there were absolutely people that we wanted to speak to. And I, I there was only one person in this entire story who I never spoke to personally once, who I wanted to, which is Michelle Platini. Mm. I never even had a phone call with him. Um, his position baffled me he always said oh i'll do this when i'm cleared of all cases in the justice system sure and then he was cleared and he still didn't speak to us but in the interim did loads of french media um and i i don't really know why i think maybe he i i, I truly don't know why um jack warner i had a very interesting phone conversation with when i was in trinidad um jack warner basically i mean to cut a long story short he's he's incredibly paranoid um, he wanted to know, you know, he, there's a lot of stories about him refusing to deal with foreign journalists for the fear that they're sort of FBI undercover squads who are going to whisk him out of Trinidad because he's currently fighting extradition to the US. If he set foot on a plane and landed in the US, he'd be in handcuffs immediately. Yeah. Um, so I had a phone conversation with him in Trinidad and he, I basically said, listen, I just want to meet you, no cameras, um, no shenanigans. I just want to meet you and tell you about our project and see if this is something that you might want to contribute to in any way. And then after some back and forth, he said, sure, I'll tell you where to meet me. Um, mm. I was told to come unarmed, which unarmed. was, you know, <laughs> I, I never like to leave my AK 47 at home, but geez, I had to this time. So I, I and then I, he said, basically, I'll, I'll be in contact with you to tell you where to meet. 
and never did, never showed, never gave me the, the message. And then when I texted him to say, I'm leaving Trinidad, he said, safe flight, Miles, which is maybe the scariest text I've ever <laughs> got. Um, I, in terms of other people, there were some people that I, that we had arranged interviews with who pulled out 10, 15 minutes before. Mm. Um, we flew out to Cameroon during the African Cup of Nations and lined up a few interviews with people who were... Um, heavily involved in African football, two of whom are actually accused of receiving $1.5 million for their votes. So Issa Hayat and Jacques Anuma. Both of them agreed to interviews month in advance. We flew out to Cameroon because they'd agreed and we'd had a good relationship. And we told we'd been very upfront about our program. And both of them pulled out 15 minutes before. And I, I, I actually don't think that's because they went, oh, you know, I don't, I, I just, I think that actually spoke to some might say the arrogance of people who are involved in football at that level, mm. that that they look at people in the media as, you know, we're just not on the same plane as them. Um, I was disappointed because I think they would have had really interesting things to share from their perspective of what was it like to be courted by these bids so aggressively? Yeah. What was it like to sit in a room and have a one and a half million dollars allegedly put on a table in front of you and said, this is for your federation. I hope we can trust on your vote. Um but with those exceptions, I was really pleased that we could speak to, I would say, 95% of the main protagonists of this story. I think what's really well done in this is that you do let people speak. Um, you do let people say what they um, want to say, and, and you leave it up to the viewer to an extent to decide what they believe and what they don't believe and, and everything else. And, and certainly the, the section around the award of the 2018 World Cup and the 2022 World Cup uh, to Qatar, you know, there's, there's a lot going on. A lot has been written of that of late. I mean, now that the tournament has started, how do you, how do you view those decisions? Um, you know, you do speak to some of the people from the Qatari um, executive committee who come across, you know, perfectly polite, perfectly um, reasonable in terms of what they say and how they say it. But, you know, the nuts and bolts of the bid and, and the things that um, have been written, the whistleblower, the Sunday Times stories, all of those kinds of things, like ultimately – so money can get you stuff, but money can also cover up stuff as well, which I think is another aspect that perhaps we don't focus on quite as much. So it's like uh, the truth is coming out. We can make the truth go away with money, with power, with influence, with threats, as as with any big organization. Yeah, I mean, as I, I hope this doesn't sound like a cop out, but as filmmakers, what we were trying to do is is rather than sort of say, this is what we have investigated and we know happened, what we were trying to say is, here's a timeline of the events. Here's a timeline of all the events and accusations and counter-accusations and mm. rebuttals and so on, and let everyone have their say, including the Supreme Committee in Qatar, who deny all of the allegations, and let, and let the viewers decide. And I think a really good example of this, I'm just going to pick one example that we touched on in the documentary, is there's a European voter by the name of Marius Lefkaritis. He's a Cypriot. Uh, we believe he voted for the Qatari World Cup. We believe he did that partly on the instruction of um, Michel Platini, who as the head of UEFA will be telling the Europeans, this is how I'm voting and I, I expect you ought to do the same as well. So Lefkaritis um, may or may not vote for Qatar. We believe he does. Qatar win. And then some Qatari, a Qatari company buys land own, that is owned by Lefkaritis for well above the market value, something like $30 million uh, in Cyprus. And Lefkaritis is able to say, Yes, of course, I sold that land, but that has nothing to do with my vote. And there's no mechanism that can judge that to be true or not. There's no court, there's no football court that really can decide, oh, yeah, this is bollocks or this is true. Yeah. And all we can do is present the facts to the audience and decide whether that land, you, you can decide whether that land deal had an influence, an undue or an unfair influence on that man's vote. He can say, on Monday, I voted for Qatar because I thought they were going to host a very good World Cup. And on Tuesday, he can sell that land. And, and, and that's the end of it. And this happened repeatedly, right? There are all these accusations that are basically circumstantial. And so the Qataris are well within their rights to deny it and say, these stories are made up or these things happen. But, you know, does a gas deal between Thailand and Qatar have anything to do with the fact that there is a Thai voter on the Exco? Of course it doesn't. We don't claim to have all the definitive answers, mm. but we hope that just by presenting the facts and laying them out in the way in which they happen, that, that people can come to their own minds. And more importantly, if you come to whatever conclusion you come to, 
do with that information what you will. If you want to boycott Qatar, boycott Qatar. If you want to watch the World Cup, but grumble and moan and tweet about it, do that. If you want to watch the World Cup and say, actually, I think, you know, this is all pretty fair. And also FIFA didn't explicitly ban this. And if FIFA had been better about policing their, their bidding process, none of this would have happened. So I don't blame the Qataris for playing by FIFA rules. And therefore whatever conclusion you want to come to. We yeah. just want to give you the facts. Well, yeah, I mean, that's it. Uh, you know, um, there's a game there to be played and everyone's capable of playing it. You know, how how hard they want to play is is another part of, of the question. I mean, what do you make of what FIFA is now? Has it changed? Um, does it wield the same kind of influence and, and power? I mean, there are a couple of things that just spring to mind, you know, given that the World Cup is on right now and we've seen some things happen. For example, you know, the World Cup is made on, uh, the bid is made on the proviso that, you know, beer will be sold at the stadiums and Budweiser is a big sponsor. And, you know, maybe you could make the argument that a lot of people have been saved from drinking Budweiser and fair play. But, you know, <laughs> at the last minute, those those goalposts were moved. We got told that everybody would be welcome and some of the messaging around uh, the rainbow flag, for example, is, you know, look, it's fine, you can come here, everybody is welcome, but we're seeing that in practice, that's not the case in terms of how people are being policed, maybe not the right word, but stewarded at the games and, and things like that. FIFA have gone very quiet um, since the start of the tournament, since Gianni Infantino's ridiculous, uh, I feel like uh, whatever he feels like speech. Um I mean, is there a sense that they are the second part of this particular World Cup? Do you get that? And then I would just want to ask you very finally about, you know, the organization um, and what might change in the future. Can I very quickly say something before I jump onto the yeah. FIFA? Because I think something you said there about playing the game when it comes to the bidding process, yeah. I want to mention something that's really important. When it comes to playing the game, Everybody did it. And when I say everybody, I don't just mean Qatar and Russia. I mean, England did. Australia did. I mean, everybody yeah. did for the World Cup. I want to give one specific example because I don't want anyone out there going, oh, these guys, they're such hypocrites. They just focus on Qatar because actually, like, let's let's have a look in our own backyard. And forgive me, I know you're in Dublin, but I'm speaking to you from North London, where a lot of your listeners will be, I'm sure. So let's just look at what we did here in London, right? As part of the England bid, they said to Jack Warner, a man who is indicted for corruption, we will throw a friendly England v Trinidad in Trinidad and you can handle the TV contract. You're saying to a guy, <laughs> you know, you're saying to a guy who's got a history of corruption, you know, here's a freebie. And you're going, gee, I hope this guy isn't corrupt. You know, it's just like it's just what, what England did and what many of the other countries did was basically a sort of miniature version, a mini-me version of what Qatar did. They did it unsuccessfully and unsophisticatedly and, you know... Naively in a way, out. didn't they? Naively. Because they thought, like, the the sort of, if you like, the, the romanticism of football in England and we have the football infrastructure, stadiums and things like that. In and terms of infrastructure... In that, sorry, go on. Sorry, I was going to say naively in the sense that you know, they think, oh, one friendly with Jack Warner is going to cut it and Beckham's going to come over, not knowing that next door Qatar are probably doing 50 times the amount of politicking. It's very naive. And yeah, and, and there's an arrogance to the to the English. Like, for example, if you speak to anyone in the FA and, you say, and they say, where are you calling from? Hi, I'm in London. They go, ah, we hate your FA. Why do you hate our <laughs> FA? Because they are the FA. Everyone else is the Somali FA or the Nauruan FA or the Australian. We are the FA. Mm. And even that like kind of rubs everyone up the wrong way. And anyway, I just, I want to make the point that when it comes to playing the games, like you very rightly point out, it was not just Qatar doing this. We were doing it too. There are a lot of things that I think uh, in Europe, everywhere around the world, we, we could have a look at doing things better, I think. Um, and, and, and especially when it came to that World Cup bit. But anyway, sorry, that was a, a little bit of a dogleg. To go back to your point about um, what's happening today, I suppose... You know, clearly what's happening today with rainbow flags and, and beer, like it, it speaks to an organization that is not particularly healthy, that mm. doesn't know the direction it's going in. Um, I think that my, my sort of searingly lukewarm take as someone who has spent a lot of time 
both dealing with FIFA and dealing with the Qatari Supreme Committee who organize the World Cup is... Oh, let, let me give you my, my, my personal, uh, just a little anecdote that illustrates this. Mm -hmm. When we went out to Qatar to film, we were told repeatedly, oh, of course you can film here and film in this location, film in this stadium. And on multiple occasions, we would get there and someone from a Qatari from the Supreme Committee would say, oh, no, you, you don't have authorization to be here. And, we, and we'd sort it out. And I'm not saying this was malicious. What I'm saying is it painted a picture to me of two organizations that are not in sync. Sure. That, that, that FIFA think they're in control and Qatar saying, actually, guys, we're in control here. And I think a little bit of this has been designed by Qatar in order to kind of say, we're really the power behind this here. And, you know, I know you thought you were going to have your rainbow flags, but not in our backyard. And when they do that, they have a really close eye on regional Arab politics, which I'm not going to, you know, kind of go too in the weeds with, with your listeners. But like Qatar has a real stake in being seen, really wants to be seen as a sort of the driving force in the Arab world globally. So for them to kind of show up FIFA and to strong arm FIFA mm. into stepping down, because in 2020, FIFA and Qatar announced, of course, people can have, players can have rainbow laces. For Qatar to be drawing that back so publicly, to me, is a massive show of force. And it indicates to me that on a broader level, it's kind of a very blown up version of what we experienced, that FIFA and Qatar are not on the same page, that behind the scenes, this World Cup is not going well. But this is incredibly embarrassing for FIFA. You know, you talk about the beer ban. In 2014, FIFA forced Brazil to sell beer in the stadiums <laughs> against Brazilian law. Yeah. Now the other thing, now the complete flip has happened. I imagine, I don't know this for sure, but I can imagine having met the people involved that behind the scenes, FIFA are furious, they're embarrassed. And for the first time ever, they are the second part, they're a second in charge yeah. of the World Cup host country. And that's staggering, really. It is a real shift in the dynamic that they've been used to, the, the dynamic that they have cultivated uh, down the years. So just very finally, you talk about FIFA and you mention, I think, the word unhealthy there. They have come through the scandal um, to an extent, but there is a stain, I think, and there is probably a, a sense that even though nominally some of the faces have changed, much of what goes on is pretty much the same. So if we have and have had concerns about the way the game is being run, about the way the World Cup is being um, delivered and all of those things, I mean, do you think on the back of your documentary, I'm not saying that your documentary should change everything by any means. I'm not putting that weight of responsibility on you, but thank you. Basically, I appreciate <laughs> that's that. fine. Because <laughs> that's, that. <laughs> that's a lot to deal with. But I mean, do you think based on some of the feedback that you've had and, you know, I know a lot of people that I've spoken to, you know, friends and, and family and all those people, you know, people that I've just talked to online who have watched this documentary have gone, you know, I didn't really expect to feel as angry as I did, and I think there is a sense of anger having watched this documentary, but at the same time, there's, you know, I don't know if this is just how the world works right now, that you can get angry at things that are objectively really bad and really terrible, but because we are just one man or two men on a podcast or whatever it is, that, that the, the ability to influence change, regardless of how angry you get or how many people get angry, they just, you know, carry on the same. So, I mean, do you think that as an organization, FIFA will, I'm sure some people in there have watched it, do you think there will be any kind of self-reflection in there or people in there saying, you know what, we have this incredible privilege to to be the people in charge of a game that billions of people love, that actually can, when it comes right down to it, transcend politics and gender and all of the things that that divide people, it has the power to bring people together. And that sounds a bit sort of arty-farty, a bit wanky, you know what I mean? But it yeah. can, it can do that. Is there anyone inside FIFA who's going to say, you know what, we, we could be just a little bit better? I think I let me let me answer the sort of the two halves of that. The first is like, can we as individuals change? I mean, one of the the missions that we had in making this documentary, a lot of this information was out there, and what we've tried to do is put, piece it together like a mosaic and show the timeline. And there'll be plenty of people, you know, um, Philippe Claire 
of this podcast will know a lot of this stuff before. I don't think we're telling him anything he didn't know, but I think a lot of fans, maybe he's never heard it from the people themselves or whatever, but a lot of fans will will watch the documentary and go, geez, I didn't know a lot of this was happening under my nose. And and what can we do? Well, okay, let's talk about um, Arsenal as an example, right? When, when the Super League was announced, fans were out in the street. Yeah. And in 48 hours, that went from being the future of football to an ashen rubble. Football fans got together and went, this is not on. This doesn't represent me and my club. And we stopped it. And I think that's brilliant. And Arsenal fans were, were a part of that. And what I would say to any football fan is don't stop there. Mm. You've been given the keys to power. You have been proven conclusively that you can affect change. So what I would say to you know Arsenal fans listening, don't stop that. If you are truly happy with Visit Rwanda on your shirt sleeves, fine, fair play. But if you are uncomfortable about it, make your voice heard, speak up about it. And and when it comes to FIFA politics as well, like really engage because you have power. The Super League proved that conclusively. After all, sports washing regimes wouldn't be after football if it wasn't for your passion. It's your passion and your eyeballs that make that such an attractive proposal. And if you were to turn your backs on, you know, if, if the Newcastle fans were to turn their backs on the Saudi takeover rather than go through with 95% approval, we're looking at a very different playing field here. Mm. So what I, I, I suppose my sort of uh, kind of do-gooder appeal would be to football fans is just realise the power you have and realise that the impact your voice makes. It's not gesture politics. It's a massive beacon for people around the world. Football is very unique in being able to put an issue on the front pages, from the back pages to the front pages immediately. What are people like in FIFA today? Look, a lot of the the rank and file who I've met and spent time with, they're nice people. Mm. They're football fans. Um, What are the leadership like? I think regardless of their intentions, sometimes which are good, you know, like anyone in politics, people get into politics with the best of intentions. So much of the time at FIFA seems to be occupied by how can we cement and stay in power? And I think that's always a dangerous game to play because it becomes much more about building alliances and cutting compromises than it does about leading. And if I look at the fact that Gianni Infantino has just been elected unopposed, I mean, that's not a healthy organization. No. There shouldn't be an unopposed. You, you can't tell me that in the world of football, there wasn't seriously someone who could say, I can do a better job. I, you, like everyone, like the best politician in the world, the best leaders in the world should have someone else saying, I've got a different vision for this. Mm. The fact that no one felt confident in FIFA to do that says to me that there is strong arming and behind the scenes politics that's still going on. And whether or not money is changing hands, you know, to siphon off rights deals it's sort of not the main question anymore. The main question is about FIFA's ongoing relationship with uh, dictatorships and powerful regimes. You know, it talks about the biennial World Cup, which would be a disaster in my opinion, footballistingly. Yeah. That's not a word, but you know what I mean. I know. Um, But no one really talks about the fact that the people proposing that was the Saudi Football Association and that illiberal regimes are going to continue to keep wanting to use football for their own measures. And FIFA seems to be closing up to them. When I heard that Infantino speech, you know, I feel this, I feel that, I feel a dream speech. For my, the way that I read that, we laughed about it here in, in Europe, but in Africa and Asia and the global South, they listen to that and go, yeah, we love this guy. He gets it. He gets it. He's not going to pander to the Europeans. And then I start thinking about the 2030 World Cup bid where countries like China are probably going to bid, where there's a Saudi-Egypt-Greek joint bid. Mm. And I think that that for me was Infantino saying, the US bid, the US World Cup that's coming up, US, Canada, Mexico, that's a blip. My heart is with you guys. My heart is not with the Americans. My heart is not with the Europeans, the sort of, uh, you know, I think you've talked about colonialism, whatever, which is, you know, fair enough, good point. But what I, I think he was saying is I am reorienting FIFA back towards the kind of the Qatars of this world using the World Cup for sports washing. As a football fan, that bums me out. And then I just would tie it back to the first point I made, which is football fans have power. If we we were taken by surprise by the Qatar-Russia thing, no doubt, nobody saw that coming. But we can't say that we were ignorant this time round. So I hope that when it comes to the 2030 bidding processes, people are very vocal I hope that the sports media raises a big stink and starts investigating before the bids are, are launched rather than after the winner is announced. And I just hope that basically we kind of use the 
the biggest weapon we have, which is our eyeballs and our wallets for, for good. All right. Well, look, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Really appreciate the time. The documentary is called FIFA Uncovered. It's, it's available now on Netflix in four parts. Hopefully it won't make you too angry when you watch it. Uh, Miles Coleman, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thank you very much indeed to Miles. Hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. He is the writer and producer of FIFA Uncovered, a four-part documentary series looking at FIFA, as you will have heard. If you haven't seen it already, I really do recommend it. You can catch it on Netflix. And as this World Cup progresses and as decisions are made about the game and the future of the game, this documentary doesn't just tell you what happened in the past. It gives you some insight into how things might well happen in the future. So... Like I say, comes with my highest recommendation. Do check it out if you can. Right. I'm going to leave it there for this week. James and I will be along at some point Sunday or Monday, still to be decided with an Arsecast Extra. So please do join us for that. In the meantime, have yourselves a great weekend and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Je suis un baguette. Il est irlandais, il est chaud là, il est red. Un. 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 Un baguette. Il est red. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.